Now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 4, continuing our study in uh, the book of 1 Samuel. Hear now God's holy word. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped against Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks together. Father, your word is pure. It is holy. It is meat. It is strength. It is courage. Father, we need everything that you have to say to us today. We need your word. We need to hear it. And so today, as we, as we spend time reading and reflecting and meditating on what you did many, many centuries ago with your people, we pray that we would not repeat their mistakes, that we would remove ourselves from the kinds of sins that they exhibited, and that we would make our ways right before you so that you would fight for us, so that you would defend us, so that you would crush the serpent under your feet, under our feet, and that we might be delivered from all oppression of sin, of death, of the devil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, no doubt you've heard it said, there's no situation so bad that you can't make it worse. There's no situation so awful that you can't somehow find a way to mess it up some more. And in fact, we know that, and yet at the same time, we find ourselves in these situations where we hit rock bottom and we keep digging. We keep making things worse for ourselves. Our sin blinds us to the reality of our condition. Sin makes us insane. Sin turns things upside down and inside out. And for some reason, we fail to see how our language and our behavior and our demeanor only make more messes. And we're ignorant of the ways in which we hurt ourselves and, and we put ourselves further and further from happiness and restoration and forgiveness. What does it take to stop someone who is bent on destroying themselves? Usually, 
there has to be some great tragedy, some profound demonstration of God's judgment before someone will wake up and see that the path that they're on is leading to destruction, not only for them, but for their family, perhaps for the church. Ordinarily, people will not believe that they have a problem. They won't see that, that they have a problem until everything comes crashing in on them. And then, amazingly, some percentage of those will keep doing everything they can to make it worse. We double down on our stubbornness, in our arrogance, and we refuse to repent or change. We have to almost be brought to the very brink of death before we'll wake up and do something and repent. This is the kind of situation, this is the kind of attitude that the people of Israel have when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, these last few weeks, we've been reading about the, the climate, the environment that Samuel steps into when he's ordained as a prophet and priest before the Lord. We recall the situation we saw last week, uh, how uh, the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. We read there was no widespread revelation. So the people had stopped listening to God, and because they stopped listening, he stopped speaking. There was, there was no preaching of the word. There was no, people weren't uh, consulting God's word for how to live before him. The high priest was blind, we read, blind both physically, but also spiritually and morally blind. And then we read that the lamp in the tabernacle was about to go out. That once the lamp in the tabernacle is out, there's nobody left to keep the fire. Worship in the tabernacle ceases. We stop bringing our petitions and our cares and our concerns and our needs before the Lord. We stop petitioning on behalf of Israel and on behalf of the world. This is the condition of Israel. Everything's winding down. Everything's falling apart. Everything's getting dark. And we saw that those who were tasked to guard the gates of the tabernacle, those who are tasked to guard the worship of, of God, are perverting worship. Uh, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are stealing from God. They're stealing from the people. They're not protecting the bride. They're defiling her. And so Proverbs tells us, that when our ways please the Lord, even our enemies will be at peace with us. And that's going to be kind of a, a running theme through our, our lesson this morning. When our ways please the Lord, even our enemies are at peace with us. But Israel's ways are not pleasing to the Lord. And as a result, they've been suffering under Philistine oppression for about 20 years at this point. Now, you and I know, because we've read ahead, that the flame is going to get blown out. Literally, the lamp in the tabernacle is, is going out. But behind the scenes, God has lit a new lamp in Samuel. Uh, he's called Samuel as, as his prophet and priest. But the people aren't aware of this yet. The people don't understand what's going on. And, and so they are fed up with the Philistine oppression, and they gather an army, at the opening of, of chapter 4, and they go out to fight the Philistines halfway between Shiloh and the land of Philistia at a place called Aphek. Uh, and now, now, I've read every word of Samuel out loud so far. To this point, I have read every word of Samuel out loud to you, and I want you to recall if you ever heard me read anything about repentance or fasting or sackcloth and ashes or covenant renewal, or revival among the people of Israel. Have we read any of this? Have we seen any of this? <laughs> have, we, have we any indication that Israel is ready to go out to battle against the Philistines? Has, has there been any work 
to reform the people and fix what is wrong at the tabernacle. Now, we haven't heard. We haven't heard any of this. The people haven't poured themselves out asking God for forgiveness. They haven't asked God for his blessing. God hasn't told them to go do this. So where are they getting this from? Why do they think that this is a good idea to go fight the Philistines? <laughs> uh, what's going on here? Well, we haven't, we, haven't seen any, we haven't seen any repentance or revival, and we're going out to battle. How's that going to work out? Well, it goes about like you, were, you would imagine. Things are never so bad that you can't make them worse. And that's exactly what Israel does here. They go out to battle, and they're slaughtered. 40,000 men are killed at the battle of Aphek, killed by the Philistines. Now, you would think this is the wake-up call. You would think that this is the point at which we stop and say, maybe we need to seek the Lord's face. Maybe we need to tear our garments and put ashes on our heads. And maybe we need to pour ourselves out in repentance. Maybe this loss of 40,000 men and sons and husbands and brothers, maybe this wakes us up. Maybe we need to remember how Yahweh fought our battles for us in the past when our ways pleased him. But instead of that, they get to the bottom of the hole and they start digging. They call, the elders call up to the tabernacle. They call for Hophni and Phinehas, those stalwart, faithful young men who are so brilliant, such masterminds of, of theology and, and care for what Yahweh wants. The elders of Israel call for Hophni and Phinehas to bring the Ark of the Covenant out so they could take it into battle with them. Now, if Hophni and Phinehas were faithful men, they would have said, uh, no, we're not doing this. this, is, this is, the, the Ark of the Covenant is not a good luck charm. It, it's, not, it's not a talisman. But they don't do that. They say, sure, I mean, we're not doing anything today. I think we've already, you know, uh, fooled around enough and we've stolen from 14 or 15 worshipers today. So yeah, I, I'd like a little battle. Change things up a little bit. So you have the elders asking for this. You have the priests consenting to it. No one is stopping to say, you know what? We just got licked. Is there, do, do you think we ought to seek the Lord and see what he says? But these are the guys you have in charge. So what do you expect? You, you can't expect any better than this. So instead of repentance, they bring out the ark and, and, and their language is very telling. They bring out the ark of the covenant of Yahweh so that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. What, what are they, are they, they say, no, wait, Yahweh's going to save us from the hand of our enemies? No, no, no. This, this piece of furniture from the tabernacle is going to save us from the hand of our enemies. And, and it looks like somebody remembers the story of Jericho and they, they kind of have this idea that we're going, to we're going to recreate Jericho here because when they bring the ark out into the camp, all of the men shout so loudly that the earth shakes. And if anybody had a trumpet, I'm sure they would have been blowing it. They think, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to make Jericho happen again. We're going to do this all over again. But the Philistines don't crumble like the walls of Jericho. They don't. They say, the Philistines say, what does this great shout mean? Why are the Hebrews shouting over there in their camp? And they're initially concerned because the Philistines do remember the way that Yahweh fought for Israel against Egypt. Now, as a side note, we need to always remember that the Philistines are 
Egyptians. The Philistines likely are a deposed dynasty from Egypt that finds their way over to Canaan and then they irritate and agitate and they, give, they, they create trouble for, for Israel for several, several centuries. Uh, but, but there's so many connections between Philistia and Egypt in the Bible and these people, these Philistines, have memory of the way that, that God, the, the gods, they say the gods of the Hebrews, saved them in in Egypt. They have some memory of the way that God fought on the behalf of uh, his people. And so when they hear the shout, they say, oh, what's, what's going on there? And yet they strengthen themselves for battle. The Philistines go out and they defeat Israel. And there's another great slaughter of 30,000 men. The ark is captured and Hophni and Phinehas are, are killed. The two sons of Eli are killed. Now, Israel was hoping that this would be another Jericho, but it ended up being more like another Ai because there's sin in the camp that hasn't been resolved yet, just like Ai, just like when Achan kept back uh, plunder from the city of Jericho and they went out to battle with sin in the camp. Again, when our ways please the Lord, our enemies are at peace with us. Our enemies fall before us, but Israel's ways don't please the Lord. And so we have a repeat of not Jericho, but Ai. The Lord weakens them and turns them over to their enemies. Now, when this happens, word makes its way back to Shiloh, where, where the priest Eli is. And we'll pick this up in verse 12. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Now, when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, Eli is concerned. Eli understands this isn't right. And yet again, Eli has never spoken up. Eli has never stopped his sons from doing what they want to do. And so he just kind of sits and wrings his hands. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? You know what he says? He says exactly the same thing that the Philistines said. Back when they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Eli repeats the same phrase. He said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? Uh, Eli's as much on the outside looking in as the Philistines are. And the man qu came quickly and told Eli, Eli was 98 years old. And his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man came to Eli and he said, I am he who came from the battle and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he judged Israel 40 years. It's significant that Eli is sitting where when he dies, where is he sitting? He's sitting in the gate. Remember last week, we saw the importance of doors and gates, particularly regarding the, the temple and the, and the tabernacle, and, and the critical necessity of good gatekeepers. We need good doors, and we need good men standing at the doors to protect holy things and keep evil things out. Well, now, this last gatekeeper is dead. And the fact that there's death in the doorway, the death at the gate is significant. Another thing about doors that I didn't have time to get into last week is that doorways are also often associated with birth. Remember Sarah 
was sitting in the doorway of the tent when the angels came and told her that she was going to have a son and she laughed about that. Sarah was sitting in the doorway. Hannah prayed at the doorway of the tabernacle and Eli stood against the doorpost when he said, you're going to have a son. Uh, when Israel was born out of the Egyptian uh, bondage, they came out of doors that had blood on the sides and on the top. They were born out of these doors and if you didn't have the blood on your doors, you didn't gain a son as Sarah did, as Hannah did. You lost your firstborn son, right? When, uh, on the last night of the, of the plagues, on the, on, the, on the first Passover, there was death. Death came to your door, not birth. Death came to your door if you didn't have blood on your doorway. So, so these types of things happen at the door. Uh, and so Eli now, who has lost his sons, just like the people did back in Egypt, Eli has lost his sons, and now he dies in the doorway, where after he promised Hannah a son in the doorway, Eli dies in the doorway. And with his death there, with Eli's death, the tabernacle dies. The, the era of the tabernacle is over. The tabernacle is dead. The lamp goes out. Worship there is over. The ark and the altar are now separated and they don't get brought back together again until Solomon puts them back together in the temple. David brings the, the, the ark of the covenant back to the city of Jerusalem and there is a place there, but, but worship is not uh, centralized and put back together again until the construction of the temple. We're at the end of the chapter of the, of the tabernacle in the history of God's people. Tabernacle's done. So what this means is that death has come to God's house. Death has come to the door of the tabernacle and the tabernacle is put to death. From now until uh, the end of Samuel's ministry, Samuel's going to go around erecting altars. Why, why is Samuel allowed to go around making altars everywhere? Well, it's because we're back to kind of the days of Abraham, where Abraham could go around uh, putting up altars around the land. We've, we've reversed history. We've gone backwards. Uh, we've, we've, it's like we're back in the days of Abraham, and, and in many ways back uh, even in the days of the Exodus. So there's one more sad story from the house of Eli. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, do not fear for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because of the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This woman may be the most observant person in the entire chapter we've read so far. She may be the most intuitive, God-fearing woman uh, uh, besides Hannah that we've met in, in 1 Samuel. Um, the glory of the Lord had in fact departed. She was right about that. And this was obvious because the ark is captured. But in another sense, the ark had been captured because the glory of the Lord had already departed from Israel. His people have failed to honor him. His people have failed to glorify him as God. So now 
He's going to go claim his glory and his honor among the nations. He's going to go do it himself. This defeat is only the prelude to a great victory. This is how God works. Out of great loss and out of great failure and out of great shame, God brings victory. He did it at the cross with Jesus, obviously, there uh, where it looks like everything's gone, everything's lost, everything's over. They've killed the Son of God. What more can we do? Out of this, God brings victory and glory and honor and salvation and all kinds of blessing, and he's about to do that here as well. He begins to restore Israel at this point. First of all, by killing those in Israel who are causing her trouble. He deals with Hophni and Phinehas. He deals with the elders and the armies who think that they can fight these battles in their own strength. And now God is going to go off and do war with the Philistines. He's going to wage war uh, using the ark as his chariot as he goes around the, the land of Philistia. He's still going to fight for his honor and his glory. His people aren't going to get to participate in it right now. Uh, but, uh, but he's going to, uh, to go take care of things himself. Now, 1 Samuel 4 through 7 are one long narrative. And I, I thought as I was working through this this week, I thought, can we take smaller bites? And really, we can't. Uh, so what I'm going to do is, uh, if you'll bear with me and, and listen to Scripture today, I'm gonna, I just want to read this narrative. I'm going to stop at a couple of points, and I'm going to make some comments along the way. But the most important thing for you today, I want you to hear this story. I, I felt like if we divided it up, we'd, we'd lose the sense of what's happening here. Um, so, so pay close attention. I'm going to let God's Word do the talking, uh, and I want you to hear this. Uh, chapter 5. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the earth before the Ark of Yahweh. So they took Dagon and set it in his place again. And when they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of Yahweh. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Uh, Dagon was the fish god of the Philistines. His top half looked like a man. Uh, his bottom half looked like a fish. And I guess if you're making up gods, you might as well make up interesting ones. You know, we don't, we don't want boring gods. We want something that kind of looks like a, a merman or an aquaman or something. And, and that's what Dagon was. Uh, the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple as if this is a war trophy. We have our trophy case and we're defeating the other gods of all the other nations. So here's, here we have defeated Yahweh. We have brought, we have brought the Ark of the Covenant into our, our collection of gods. This is a theological statement that they're making. They're saying by doing this, Yahweh rests at the feet of Dagon. Dagon is victorious. And of course, Yahweh's going to disabuse them of this terrible theology. The next morning when the people get up and go into the house of Dagon, they find their image of Dagon lying on the earth, face down before the ark, as if he's worshiping before the ark. And what's even more humiliating, this is awful. Dagon can't get up by himself. Poor Dagon. They have to go in and they have to pick him back up and set him back up straight so that he'll stand again. I and mean, if you've got to pick your God up off the ground, 
you might start looking for a different religion, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm just wondering, do you not see the disconnect and the, and the problem here? Well, this isn't the worst of it. They set him back up, and the next day they come in, and there is Dagon lying down again, but this time his head is broken off, and his hands are broken off, both hands. So Yahweh has not only crushed his head now, but he has cut off his hands. He's cut off his power to do anything. Dagon has no head. Dagon has no hands, is the statement. There's a lot about hands in these chapters. Back in chapter 4, we read, Israel would, they brought out the ark because they wanted it to save them from the hands of their enemies. They thought their problem was, we're in the hands of the Philistines and the, and the Philistines are mistreating us. What they don't understand is that they're actually in the hands of Yahweh. And they've made Yahweh angry by their disobedience and their idolatry and their wickedness. They, they don't realize that they're in the hands of Yahweh and Yahweh's going to deal with them. They fear men more than God. So, so now after Dagon's hands are, are cut off, the Philistines have no doubt whose hands they are in. In fact, seven times in the next two chapters, the, the Philistines refer to the hand of Yahweh. I want you to listen to it as we read it in a few minutes. But they, but they talk about the hand of the Lord is heavy upon the people. His hand is harsh toward us. The hand of the Lord is against the city with a very great destruction. The Philistines know whose hand they are in because their God has no hands. The hands of their God has, have, have been broken off. And they acknowledge that Yahweh's hand is now heavy on us. Oh, yeah. This also happens at the threshold, doesn't it? The, the, the image is broken, and it's laying there on the threshold. Again, death has come to the doors of Israel, just like death came to the doors of Egypt. Now, death has come to the doors of Philistia. Death is at the doors. Yahweh has brought death to the door. And now the Philistines superstitiously, it says they don't step on the threshold of the door of that temple. Uh, they, I guess they think if, I, if, yeah, if uh, that threshold broke off Dagon's head and hands, if I step on the threshold, maybe I'll lose my head and hands as well. And so they, they don't step on the threshold. It's an interesting little, little note. Um, another quick reference before we move along. The Philistines are fond of bringing trophies into this temple. In about 20 years, they're going to be, bring another trophy into this temple and, and try to set him up. Uh, his name is Samson, and he's going to go into this temple. And he's not only going to knock down the image, but he's going to knock down the whole thing with all the lords and the ladies inside. So Yahweh's just given us a little taste of the future destruction of Philistia. They got a chance to repent now. They got a chance to correct things. Uh, in 20 years, the final judgment is going to come on this, on this temple. At any rate, let's keep reading. Verse 6, but the hand of Yahweh, see there, uh, notice and listen, the hand of Yahweh was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us and Dagon our God. Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel away. So it was after they carried it away that the hand of Yahweh was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. 
Therefore, they sent the ark of, the God, uh, of God to Ekron. So it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark is shipped from place to place. And if we were to map this out uh, on, a, on a map and show, he just makes this big circuitous route around Philistia as they try to get rid of the ark. They, they, can't, they can't put up with it. And they, they get it and they say, oh, wow, thank you. And then it, it strikes everyone with disease and say, we don't want this anymore. And so they ship it on to the next city. The people break out in a very specific kind of disease. Our English translations say, tumors, but, but many scholars agree that the word there describes a kind of growth that's very similar to the bubonic plague, enlarged, painful lymph nodes in your neck and, and under your arms. This makes sense later because we're going to have a reference to rats in association with these tumors. You know, rats carry the fleas that carry the bubonic plague. And so it may be something very similar to, if not the bubonic plague, that these men are stricken with around Philistia. But it's as if God is going on a victory tour around Philistia. He's, he's touring all the cities. It's, you know, it's, uh, Philistia tour, you know, whatever year this was, he's, you get the t-shirt. He's going from city to city, and he's knocking these cities out with this, with this plague, striking Philistia with plagues, just as he humiliated the gods of Egypt with plagues. Remember all the plagues he struck the Nile, he struck the sun, he struck the cattle. Every one of the plagues was striking one of the gods of the Egyptians, showing their gods to be powerless and impotent, using their gods against them. And so now Yahweh is humiliating Dagon. Dagon is not protecting you, Philistia. Dagon is powerless. Dagon is impotent. He is humiliating their gods. He's not being sensitive. There's not an you know, interfaith colloquium where everyone comes together and talks about the merits of Yahweh and talks about what good things Dagon worship has brought to the world. There's none of this. God is undercutting, he's undermining, he's chopping at the root of Dagon worship and he's doing it uh, just using his own ark to do this. There, there's so many overtones of Egypt and the Exodus here. But remember, as we said last week, it's not the people who are going into exile. It's not the people who are going into slavery. God is taking this exile upon himself. God is the one going into captivity, so to speak. Israel should be carried off, but God is undergoing this exile. And he's fighting Israel's enemies. Well, at this point, Philistia is tired of all of this business, and they want to just send it back. If we got the receipt, where did we get this? Let's ship it back. Let's get it back to them. Uh, chapter 6. Now the ark of Yahweh was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviner saying, what shall we do with the ark of Yahweh? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? 
They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? They, did they not let the people go that they might depart? They know just enough about Israel and Israel's worship to know that, oh, you've got to give this God an offering. You have, to, you have to make a trespass offering of some kind. You can't just send it back empty. We have to do some kind of penance or restitution. So let's give it back with some gold treasures. What kind of gold treasures? Um, what's been plaguing us? Tumors and rats. Let's make gold images of those. Now, I have no idea what a gold tumor looks like. But I'd take one. You know, I just, I'll, if you're giving them away, I'll take one. Maybe it's like a solid gold shot put or something like that. Five gold rats, five gold tumors, one for each city. The Philistines had five major cities, one for each city of the Philistines. And they do this again. They bring up the work of Yahweh over Egypt. Remember, they say, remember how, remember how Pharaoh hardened his heart? Let's not do that. And so in this odd, backward way, Philistia is honoring the Lord. They're, they're doing it with weird gold things. They don't understand what they're doing, but they're trying to give him honor and they're recognizing his power. So just as Israel left Egypt with the people shoving their plunder on them saying, please go, here are the riches, here's the gold and the jewels and, and all the fine things from our houses, please take it and please just go. So Philistia is giving Yahweh plunder to take with him as he leaves uh, the, the land of Philistia. Yahweh, the ark, is going to leave Philistia with the riches of the Philistines. Now they do one last test here because there may be some doubt. Maybe this is just a coincidence. Maybe it's, uh, it, it's not causal, the relationship between the ark and the plague. So let's, let's run one more test. Verse 7. Now therefore, make a new cart Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of Yahweh and set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold, which you're returning to him, as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and let it go. And watch, if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by chance. And the men did so. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of the tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Here, put the ark on a cart pulled by two cows that have never pulled a cart before. And, and, and make sure they're two cows that have just, just calved. They've just given birth. So that they would naturally be drawn to their calves. Put the calves in a pen. And let's see which way the ark goes. Let's see which way the cart goes. 
is driven. And sure enough, the cows pull the ark down the road toward Israel, away from their calves. Uh, they're mooing as they go, and I'm not sure what's going through these poor cows' mind. They don't know what they're doing. They, they, these cows don't pull carts, and they, their calves are back there. Something about this isn't right. They can't figure this out, but the cows keep going. Honestly, if you just stop and think about it, this is a hilarious scene, honestly. This is Yahweh's mighty victory chariot. He's riding out of Philistia. It's a cart with a box of golden tumors being pulled by a couple of cows with, with full udders lowing and mooing as they go down the road. Uh, this is how God rides back into town victorious over the Philistines. And, and little scenes like this just show me that God has a sense of the absurd. That God has, has a sense of, of humor. And, and it also reminds us how Jesus rides into Jerusalem in humility, not as, not as some mighty general, but, but on a foal of a donkey that had never been ridden before, right? He comes in the least expected way. And so here Yahweh comes back riding victoriously on a cart pulled by cows with a box of tumors. And here he comes back into town. The cart is pulled back into the town of Beth Shemesh, which is a Levitical town right on the border of Israel. And you would think that these Levites would know what to do with the ark. You'd think that they would be relieved and say, oh, wow, finally it's back. Let's take care of this the right way. But they don't. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the, then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. The Levites took down the ark of Yahweh and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day, to Yahweh. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to Yahweh one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they set the ark of Yahweh, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 of the men of the people, 50 of whom were captain over a thousand, and the people lamented because Yahweh had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Yahweh God? And to whom shall it go from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of Yahweh. Come down and take it up with you. Back after the Exodus. And by the way, we'll stop, we'll stop there in our reading. Back after the Exodus. What happens when Israel finally comes into the land of promise? Do you remember? When they cross the river, they set up memorials and they do battle with Canaanites. That's exactly what Yahweh does here when he gets into the land. There's a large memorial stone. There's a man named Joshua. And there are a bunch of people acting like Canaanites. These Levites should know better than what they do here. But they, they offer cows on the altar. You only offer male sacrifices on, on the altar. That's only male sacrifices are acceptable. 
And they think, you know what, we kind of deserve a peek into the Ark of the Covenant. Not even the Philistines, we read, open the Ark. They put those rats and tumors into a box next to the Ark. They were so fearful that the Philistines didn't open the Ark. And yet these men think, hey, look, it's the Ark. Wonder what's inside. I wonder if that pot of manna is still there. I wonder if God's law is still, I'd love a look at that. And so they opened up the Ark and then their faces melted. Oh, wait, that was... Uh, the Ark, that was the Indiana Jones movie. Never mind. But these people had never seen the outside of the Ark all their lives, much less ever, ever gotten this close to it. No one has seen it for centuries. So the Lord does battle with them and he strikes them down. And just like the Philistines, they say, we got to send this on somewhere else. We can't take care of this. We can't have this. Now we'll catch up to Samuel in chapter seven next week. And we'll, we'll pick up there. But there's one thing that I want to point out in chapter 7 that bookends this whole, this whole narrative. Samuel has been going around Israel this whole time preaching repentance and removal of, of idols. And this is the solution to the Philistine problem. If you want to be rid of the Philistine oppression, your ways need to be right before God. If we want God to release us from the slavery that we're in to the Philistines, we need to put off our slavery to idols and we need to, we need to put off all this wickedness and God will deal with the Philistines for us. And then finally, in chapter seven, there comes this point where Israel repents. There's a big covenant renewal ceremony. And then in verse 10 of chapter seven, just one verse from, from chapter seven. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Do you remember the shout of the people at the beginning when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp? When they first engaged the Philistines? The shout of the people was really, really loud and really, really ineffective. It was loud and impotent. Compare that to what happens when Yahweh shouts. The people are at worship when the Philistines draw near and it's Yahweh who thunders against the Philistines and the Philistines are defeated. When Yahweh shouts, the enemies fall down. When we shout, we can't guarantee that result. When we don't repent, when we wallow in our sins, when we set up our idols, when we fail to take God seriously, when we satisfy ourselves with excuses for why we don't have the time or the energy or the resources to be faithful, and then we say, oh, well, maybe we should try to shout at the Lord's enemies. Maybe we should try something. When we do that, we get run over. We get embarrassed. But... When we worship and repent and pour ourselves out, when we make appropriate sacrifices, Yahweh shouts on our behalf. He shouts for us. We don't have to shout. And when he shouts, his enemies are terrified and he has the victory. God does not expect you to fight your battles on your own, in your own strength, with your own resources. He doesn't expect you to do this by yourself. He doesn't expect you to fight your own battles. And yet we think that, you know, we're, we're, we're self-reliant and we're, we're fine doing this stuff on our own. But when we're faithful, he fights for us. I, I quoted Psalm 66 earlier this morning. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord does not hear us. If we harbor pollution in our minds, in our hearts, in, in, our, in the deepest parts of us, and, and, and that hasn't been dealt with. It hasn't been brought out the right way. We haven't revealed it 
to God, we haven't confessed it and asked him to really deal with it. And I mean really deal with it and not confess our sins in such a way that we say, Lord, cleanse me, but not yet. Cleanse me and, and, and fix me, but, but let, me, let me have this one more time. That's not repentance. However, when we pour ourselves out and truly ask God to quicken us, to break our hardness of heart, to teach us, we find that our enemies and his enemies uh, bow down low before him. He fights our battles for us. He knocks over Dagon. He, he weakens the Philistines. He, he destroys his enemies, and we get to participate that, in that, and we get to rejoice in that with him. That's the lesson from this big, that's one of the many lessons from this big narrative. You see those bookends. The people shout, nothing happens. They repent. They renew covenant with God. He shouts, and the victory is won. He fights our battles. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for this amazing, wonderful narrative that you've given us in the Bible. And we pray that we would meditate on these things, that your Holy Spirit would make all kinds of applications to our lives and and to our hearts. Uh, Father, strengthen us by your word. May we know it so well that we know exactly what you want and what you expect from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.